United States submarine base at Key West, Florida. The dispatch that quoted President Truman's press secretary, Charles Cross, as saying that President Truman has no knowledge of any secret project by this government that would give substance to the existence of such objects. Cross also said that both the Air Force and the Navy deny that such objects exist. Yeah. He's somewhere devaluing the house. <laughs> just like he's Peeves from uh, Harry Potter. Just a poltergeist that exists only to make life harder for his own personal enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah. It checks out. Um, let me get that yawn out real quick. Hey, what's up? My name's Noelle, and um, I'm so sick of all you st- stupid little nasty fucking slimes people <laughs> not wearing your goddamn mask when you go outside and you're sick if you just like literally do it i don't care if you think it looks stupid just like literally do it every other country does it because you stupid little petri dishes got me fucking sick with the vidi you got me sick with the vidi again because God forbid I go out into public, me, a respectable human who respects personal space and understands that you should stay inside if you're fucking sick. Not like the rest of you, whores. Mm-hmm. Hey. And I'm Chelsea. I'm tired of people who cough appropriating my culture, which is asthma. <laughs> That's true and good and fair. So, ma. Um, you know, I finally watched, and you're going to be so mad at me. But oh, I finally watched The Green Knight. Are you fucked in the head? What I had watched was I was I watched like a three-hour YouTube breakdown, which was like literally scene by scene of an Arthurian scholar breaking down the movie. Like bah, 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 bah. you have such bad mental illness, it's insane that you like are in society the way that you are. Yeah. You didn't see the fucking movie in theaters like a proud American patriot. Instead, you watched a three-hour university breakdown of it. Yes. Uh, that's exactly what I did. It's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> it was great, though. I had a good time. Uh, and then that, you know, did you ever get on the King Arthur kick when you were little? Was that ever part of your... Uh, I never got out of it, I think. Well, not really King, Ar- King Arthur. I just like was obsessed with like a knight's tale. I yeah. I really live for that era. I am very Joan of Arc coded in in like a if I could wear chainmail every day I would type of thing. Yeah. yeah, I I would agree. I think um I think my first touch with Joan of Arc was on Wishbone. So, we know I love that. Uh but yeah, I I remember being super into like Sword in the Stone and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. And then, which like led to Once in Future King by T.S. White, um, which actually like a really fucking good book, which I feel like it pushed me closer towards socialism. Uh, <laughs> and then there was like a really good one with the guy from Jurassic Park. Is that Sam Elliott? Sam Neill? Where he played Merlin, which was really good. It yeah, was, like, I was a- going to say, you like, obviously, Merlin, fantastic fun little character gandalf mm-hmm. before gandalf if you will yeah um and then lancelot was kind of like the it boy i felt so there <laughs> richard gear is in a movie called first night with um who's the scottish guy i don't know <laughs> Sean Connery. <laughs> fucking, I'm telling you, I'm having a stroke. I had a, yeah. a stroke on Patreon. I'm having a stroke now. And Julia Armand. 
played Guinevere. And I remember being mm-hmm. a little kid and uh, obviously Richard Gere and Julie Armand cheat on Sean Connery together. Yeah. And my house was a Sean Connery house mm-hmm. and I still fucking hate them to this day. I wow. don't watch Richard Gere movies and I don't oh watch God. Julie Armand movies. And you know who else? Julie Armand was also in Legends of the Ball and she was a bitch in that too. But that I think that was my first co-signing a feud because mm-hmm. my mom was like, I hate them. We're not watching any more movies with them in it. They always play people I don't like. And I think that, yeah, that was my first co-sign. Well, speaking of feuds, I mean, Arthurian Tales, the OG of feuds. Who doesn't love a feud? It's like, also, um, I loved Arthurian Legend because it was so mystic while being so not. Like, Pulling the sword from the stone, like pulling Excalibur, or like finding a st- finding the sword in like the Lady of the Lake, if you will, mm-hmm. and like becoming mm-hmm. the next fucking queen, like that sounded so based in reality. Like it, even I don't know. It just it was mystical fairy tales with, but like somehow by making it medieval, it made it more real. It. It was so believable because all of it was tangential to history that was going on, like their crusades, mm-hmm. um, like Roman Empire falling, all of that stuff, or like just Britannia. And I think that what's so interesting about all of that is that you get these like huge dynamic characters and everybody at some point, whether they fuck up or not, is just so cool. Like even Lancelot is fucking neat guinevere is super cool um obviously arthur and then you have like uh the like morgana and all this what stuff. was uh lady lady um oh my god is it she's with lancelot guinevere no <sighs> hold on are you looking it up i'm just googling who is with lancelot lancelot and lady that's it who is that well lady diana i don't lady guinevere uh the only thing i'm getting is guinevere while you look it up anyway i don't think it's guinevere um, but guinevere that iconic fucking photo that everyone turned into a meme that was like you know all the reply guys bowing down to me in my comments of my pictures is um queen guinevere and sir lancelot mama I we said Guinevere. It. I know, but I was thinking of someone else. Oh, that's okay then. Yeah. Um, and then watching Green Knight and then, wa- well, watching the like breakdown of Green Knight and then watching Green Knight. Um, the biggest part of the breakdown was how essential like sh- the chivalry, the chivalry code, chivalric code was at that time. And that really is something that is burned into our psyches now, but being a knight at that point, the guy breaks down, like even when um, Sir Gawain is riding on his horse and the guy like peasant is like, Hey, if you give me money or whatever, that would be like really sick, but he doesn't give him enough money. And that's like the first time he's not chivalrous or even when they're going to church at the very beginning, he's on his horse and his girlfriend isn't, that's not chivalrous. It shows a lot of stuff that he does that isn't necessarily pointed out that goes against the things that a knight should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just I was like oh I didn't even realize like how much really went into being like a good knight and it really 
was like an entire fucking culture, if not even a religion. Like I would compare it to being like a Mandalorian, where it literally becomes your entire identity to be chivalrous. And mm-hmm. I had no idea. I thought chivalry was just being nice to women. Um, <laughs> but even um, and then they were saying like the big test of him isn't getting his fucking head cut off. It's in the story of the Green Knight um, when Gawain goes and the lady's like, "Give me a kiss." But then her husband's also like, you have to return to me whatever you get from this house. Mm -hmm. It's better for him to not turn down the woman and then to also like give a kiss was like a huge test of chivalry. And then the main conundrum is when she's like, okay, now I want you to have sex with me. It would have been bad chivalry to tell her no because you weren't supposed to tell ladies no. But she's married, so now it's like the conundrum of his chivalry. And they were like, that was like the big test of him. It wasn't necessarily getting his head cut off. Because we all know what fucking bravery is. But it's when you're in the back rooms when no one's watching and there's mm-hmm. zero consequences where you can just lie. Yeah. It's like, I didn't even realize that. Like, I didn't even know that was like the big test. Because then that guy ends up being the green knight. Like, the mm-hmm. guy who's like, give me a kiss. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, but isn't that the whole moral of the story is like you should be it's funny because Arthurian chivalry which is just courage honor courtesy loyalty justice comes in the era of religion right Mm -hmm. you've got like the holy grail type shit happening at the same time like the quest for the holy grail which are brutally unchivalrous if you look at like the crimes of the crusades which is obviously the crusades some of the worst shit in history Mm -hmm. um (laughs) but it's the and and it's funny because it's like based it has a underpin of religion but it's almost defining morality without the fear of god yeah which is honestly like almost anti-religion to be Mm -hmm. like this is the code of conduct you follow to be chivalrous and good and just in both war and uh social settings yeah um by only means of the knight's code and a knight's honor, not yeah. because you uh, fear the wrath of God. Like that's not the main point. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like the moral compass of it all. And I yeah. think that's uh, super fun and interesting. And that that the Green Knight tale is the perfect anecdotal story for it of the it's what you do when no one's watching because someone's always watching. Right. Yeah. The fact that like, you know, he's kind of hidden there the whole time watching him make these choices, like out of sight, watching him fuck up, watching him struggle, watching him redeem. um, Like that's, that is what it actually means to be a moral and just and good, well-rounded person is what are you doing when no one's watching? Yeah. And it's, it's also super complicated. It's not black and white because mm-hmm. turning down a woman, obviously we're like, well, that's not good. You shouldn't sleep with a married woman. But at that time, it was like, if a woman propositions you, it's not nightly to refuse her. But then it's also like not nightly to sleep with your host's wife. And mm-hmm. it's like, he has to search for the gray. And I think that that's also like, I, it went over my head the first time because I was just like, oh, this is really interesting. Like, he's going to turn her down, but it's like so much deeper than that. And then the fact that um, he also protects her chivalry or her like righteousness by not telling the husband that she propositioned him is also like 
protecting that. But then he kisses the husband to protect that honor. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's cool because I think that we get lost uh, when we start talking about like morality and having it tied into religion. And people are like, well, what does it look like? Sometimes people can't be like, well, can you be moral without like the Ten Commandments? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And exactly. it's, it's silly nonsense. And then the fact that you have this character who exists as probably one of the most dynamic symbols of what a just and good king does, but then you tie him in with magic and things that aren't necessarily Christian. I mean, we'll get into his backstory here of like how King Arthur came about, but it is not Christian, girl. Um, oh, I I fucking believe it. And I, I think that like um, one of the cool parts of the Green Knight, and you kind of like touch on it, is the theme of natural human weakness Mm -hmm. um because i think that is something that is lost in a lot of like quote-unquote fairy tales or tales of morality or or you know what i mean like whatever those Mm -hmm. guiding biblical Mm -hmm. principles are yeah it feels like um divinity was always destined like they were born perfect where these types of stories always highlight just the nature of being imperfect, which is human weakness naturally. And, but then they also will follow up with redemption and redemption, not coming from anyone other than the person who, you know, faulted. And I think like, that's why these like night stories are so cool because they don't go to the altar to pray for forgiveness. They get, they grasp their own redemption. Yeah, that's the perfect way. Like they, the example that they set through their own course is like, that's the fucking journey. And by the end of it, it's not throwing your money into a pan on a mm-hmm. Sunday morning. It's like just fucking getting out there and living yeah. it through yeah. your own mistakes and tumultuous like journey. Exactly. So that the Green Knight inspired us to get an episode about King Arthur going, which is a little bit different than what we normally talk about. There's not very much conspiracy. There's not, there's like a lot of history and there is a little bit of magic, but it's lore. Lore. Yeah. And I think we've been living, well, we've been leaning into folklore pretty hard lately. Yeah. So yeah, let's, uh, <clears throat> let's have some good old fashioned folklore. Let's do it. So we are going to go on a journey through the mists of time back to a period where legends and history intertwine in an enchanting way. So picture the late 6th and early 7th centuries, where poetry was not just words, but was the lifeblood of Welsh culture. And in these verses, a name emerged, and one that would echo throughout the ages, the name of Arthur. And it wasn't just any name. It was a beacon of hope and a symbol of resistance. Arthur was hailed as a hero and a mighty leader who rallied against the Britons in their fierce battles against the evading Saxons. His name was whispered in awe around campfires and sung in the halls of the brave. And fast forward to the 12th century, which was a time of castles, knights, and legends that were larger than life. And it was then that a narrow piece of land on the coast, known as Tintagel, Tintagel, fuck, I should have looked up the pronunciation of that. This place became- Tintagel sounds more like Orgel, which doesn't sound right. So I think you were- um, Tintagel? Tintagel. Hold on. No. Tintagel. Oh, it is Tintagel. Tintagel. I heard it, it through your Okay. So, uh. <laughs> well, I'm glad we looked it up now because I'm going to say it more than once. So, this Origel place became yeah. forever intertwined with Arthur's legacy. So, let's enter a guy called Joffrey of Montmouth. 
who was a Welsh cleric with an imagination as vast as the skies. In 1136, he penned The History of the Kings of Britain. And this wasn't just a book. It ended up being a saga that claimed to trace the very roots of Britain back to Trojan exiles. And interestingly enough, I know something in The Green Knight that this YouTube deep dive went into was the first two people that you see at the beginning of the movie are credited as being one of them is Helen of Troy because this time overlaps with the actual Trojan fucking war. I thought Trojan war was like prehistory. Isn't. If you rewatch every night and you look at the credits roll, it says that Helen of Troy. Yep. I was going to say, isn't like the context of history on a timeline. So like mind boggling, like whenever they, I can't, th- I can't think of one off the top of my head right now because I have brain rot, but I'm going to just make one up when they say, when you, when you see like, um, I don't know, Gandhi was alive when the internet was invented. Like what, you know, whenever yeah. they do those, like or comparison, Cleopatra was around when the mammoth was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like shit what? like that. Like, oh, the, this university was built when Cleopatra was still in rule. Like shit like that. The as the Aztec Empire is younger than fucking Oxford. Yes. Yeah. Like whenever they do those comparisons to put it in perspective, it like yeah. fucks with your brain to be like, sharks, oh my God. Sharks are older than the rings on Saturn. No, the Appalachian Mountains are. Yeah. Older we, than the rings of Saturn. We knew that, girl. Blows. Yeah. So time, weird. That broke my brain. <laughs> yeah, that kind so, of breaks my brain a little bit yeah. too. Um, so let's get ready for a twist that would make any storyteller's heartbeat faster. Because in this tome, Jeffrey spins a tale about a sixth century king named Uther Pendragon. Arthur's story starts with an act of passion and deception. Uther Pendragon, the king of Britain, was enamored by a beautiful woman named Lady Egraine, who was the wife of the Duke Gorlois of Cornwall. And so Uther Pendragon sought the help of the enigmatic wizard Merlin. And through Merlin's magic, Uther disguised himself as Lady Egraine's husband. And from this quote-unquote union, Arthur is born. Can I just say, another thing that we don't talk about a lot as a society is how fucking silly and drag everyone's goddamn names were. Yeah. Pendragon, Mama, coming to the stage, Uther Pendragon. Mm -hmm. And what was it? Duke of... Duke of what? Duke Gorlois of Cornwall. It's just so made up. It's so fun. Yeah. So Joffrey wrote that, quote, the night she conceived Arthur, the most famous of men, who subsequently won the great renown by this outstanding bravery. So imagine, if you could, that the most famous king in history was born from deceit and lies through a thirsty and tragic father figure who 100% raped Lady Agrain through uh, deceit and magic to father King Arthur. So, to protect the child from the dangers of a kingdom rife with strife, Merlin whisked the newborn away and ensured that his upbringing would be done in secrecy and safety. So, as a boy, unaware of his royal lineage, Arthur found himself drawn to a mysterious sword embedded in stone, an object of great wonder and challenge. With a mix of innocence and destiny, he pulled the sword from the stone and revealed himself as the rightful heir to the throne of Britain. Do you want to know something? Yes. 
So you know at Disneyland, there's the sword and the stone. Mm-hmm. And you can pull it. But it doesn't come out for just anyone, does it? No. And here's what I learned because of the internet. So I sat there and I ripped on that bitch. I got on it, put my feet on it, and was like leveraging to try to pull it. Didn't even wiggle mm-hmm. a little bit. Apparently, it's because I'm not like a chunky little five-year-old. Because I saw videos of some kids pulling the sword. They out. don't deserve it. They don't want it as much as I There's do. There's someone with a fucking button pressing it for some people. And I can't stand it because that kid probably will never remember that. They I want to be the one who decides. Why why isn't it me? It, literally, yeah. why isn't it me? Why like I would cherish the memory of pulling the sword from the stone at Disneyland. Also, I actually paid to be here. I paid the fee to get into this shithole. Mm-hmm. I paid for the overpriced vegan food, which is very limited. You have hundreds of my literal dollars. And if you see me yanking on the fucking sword, mm-hmm. push the button. Push the fucking button. I yeah. am a tax paying nine to five working American citizen who is lower class and I'm at your establishment press that fucking button that five-year-old has never experienced hardships like I do and they never will they never will never they, will they because didn't just go climate to Aber- change will have killed them by now literally they didn't just go to the Abercrombie and try on 17 <laughs> pairs of pants only for none of them to fit correctly and have a breakdown in a fucking public place they didn't have that mm-hmm. I did push the fucking button do you see no. that there? Do you see that? Yeah. No, you don't. Do you want to know why? Because <laughs> that's the twinkle in my eye that should have existed had Disney let me pull the fucking sword from the oh, stone. Oh, I thought you were pointing at your crow's feet from not no. sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, girl, I see. Yeah, well, yeah. And do you see that wrinkle? That's a wrinkle of depression, bitch, from being overlooked yet again by the Disney overlords. Yeah. And I'm again. sick of it, Noelle. I'm gonna make I'm gonna make aggressive porn with Steamboat Mickey now that he's in the fucking public <laughs> IP because they didn't yes. give me the sword. <laughs> Use AI for good, and that is ripping off public characters. They're still protected um, under the copyright clause because AI art doesn't count as being ripped off yet. Mm. So we're gonna make our own Mickey Mouse shirts. Get fucked. fucked. Yeah. I hope, I, do. I hope there was no delay and we actually did say that at the same exact time. <laughs> I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. Um, so, anyway. <laughs> among Arthur's notable half-siblings were Morgaus and the enigmatic Morgan Le Fay, a sorceress whose loyalty to Arthur wavered between support and subterfuge. And their relationships were complex. They were entwined with secrets and spells, which added layers of intrigue to Arthur's reign. And at the heart of Arthur's court was his queen, the radiant Guinevere, and their marriage, though initially filled with love, became shadowed by one of the most famous and tragic love triangles in literature. Sir Lancelot, the bravest of Arthur's knights, fell deeply in love with Guinevere, and their forbidden affair, a blend of passion and betrayal, would eventually lead to the unraveling of Arthur's kingdom. Typical, Mama, typical. Yeah, and we're blowing through this because I'm sure most people know the lore, but... I actually don't because I think the public education system is failing at a rapid Uh-oh. rate that we can't even comprehend. But I had to seek this on my own. Yeah. 
But like, do they even read Beowulf in school anymore? You know what I mean? I yeah. I mean, I think Once in Future King and the Book of Merlin, my mom and dad already owned. So that's how I was able to get these greasy stems on them as a mm-hmm. child. Um, but also like my parents like wouldn't let us watch TV, so all I could do was read. I was one of those. And that's why you are the way you are. That is why I all I do is read. I mean, I was reading the Wikipedia when I saw that ghost, bitch. All I do is read for information and I retain none of it. So it's what what's the point? Yeah. So I could have <laughs> had the best education in the world and I'd still be stupid. So that and is what you it know, is. that is that's life, mama. Memory of a lemming, some might say. So Arthur's round table, a symbol of equality and camaraderie brought together the bravest and most noble knights. And these knights, bound by the code of chivalry, embarked on quests that echoed through the halls of time. And the most sacred of these quests was the pursuit for the Holy Grail, womp, cup of womp. Christ, yeah, and a, a symbol of divine grace and human fallibility. I didn't realize when I was, like, really young, though, that the Crusades were, like, essentially for the Holy Grail. I thought yeah, it was that just they push. Were, that they were real. Yeah, I just, yeah, I thought it was literally just push Christianity, but like they were looking for like holy relics. That blows my fucking mind. Yeah, them and Hitler looking for the holy grail. <laughs> Historically, Indiana Jones had it the whole time, stupid. So, and guess who wanted it? The Nazis. Nazis. So, the twilight of Arthur's reign was marked by shadows of betrayal and conflict. The Battle of Camlin, a tragic strife, born out of a familial uh, betrayal and broken loyalties, saw Arthur mortally wounded in a duel with Mordred, his own nephew, and in some tellings, his son. The once great king, now fallen, was carried off to the mystical Isle of Avalon, a place of healing and magic. And there, amidst the veils of enchantment, Arthur's fate remains shrouded in mystery. Some say he died. And others whispered that he lies in a magical slumber, waiting to return in Britain's hour of need. And the legend of King Arthur. All I'm going to say love- real quick is that if Britain had an hour of need, it's right now when the Prince Andrew shit is coming out on Epstein's flight logs. And there's rumors that what's his fuck Crypt Keeper is going to step down because of the controversy of it all. Dude, they should have he should have popped back up when they were voting to leave the European Union, man. Yeah, honestly. So Or World War Two. Why not? Some would say World War Two. He should have really come around. He should have um, really come around. Picture it now. Hitler. Mm-hmm. Stay with me. Yep. Just prancing around like a big old queen. Yeah, like he was, girl. He was. And he goes, he sneaks up on Winston Churchill. I don't, I know they never met face to face, but you just stick with me. Winston Churchill is just sitting in his room, enjoying a cigar. Mm-hmm. Hitler goes to punch him. His fist is caught by a hand that pops out of the back of Churchill's bald head. And the <laughs> hand is coated in a chalice. Yeah. And like Professor Quirrell. <laughs> Out slithers fucking King Arthur. And he's like, because I don't know how they used to talk back in the day in that weird old knight's English. Yeah. But he just fucking beats the shit out of Hitler. And then we have the coolest shit to ever happen in history. That's so cool. That's like, that should be in Glorious Bastards 2. You know, we could make it. That would actually be so sick. That it would it would almost look like fucking Sauron, like coming through the back of his fucking head. 
Oh my god. Uh, who was the guy who had the actual sibling growing out of the back of his head? Mandrake? Wasn't his real name Mandrake? Hmm. I don't remember him. We didn't I, Oh, we should do an episode on that because he was a real dude. And he would hear his fucking twin growing out, whirling in the back of his head, whispering bullshit to him. And sometimes I, the little face on the back of his head would smile. Um, I can't believe you haven't heard of this. I've seen pictures, and frankly, that's enough for me because yeah, that's fair. That is so horrific. Did he like kill the twin off? Like what happened there? Uh, I don't think he had a good life. We should do an episode about him. It'd be cool. Uh, yeah. I, I, oh, you're telling me the guy who had his fucking fetal twin stuck to the back of his head and heard it whispering to him at night didn't have a good life. Oh, oh, my God. I'm shocked. No. I'm shocked and appalled. You know, he could have turned it into a great life, but nobody wants to work anymore. Um, <laughs> now, <laughs> scholars have universally waved off Joffrey's text as a splendid tapestry of pseudo history. But... Where they may see see a marvelous concoction, what I see is an expertly woven thread of ancient folk tales and the vibrant colors of Joffrey's own vast ima- uh, imagination. But the line between myth and reality often comes down to who is telling the story. And in this episode, we're fucking telling the story. So we're going into Arthur was real, along with his knights and the stories of magic and the great destiny. Yeah, I want to believe. So let's travel to a time when belief and legend really walked hand in hand. So many people of Joffrey's era, entranced by the allure of his tales, wholeheartedly believed in the existence of King Arthur. And one of them was a certain Richard, Earl of Cornwall. And Richard wasn't just any nobleman. He was a man that was so captivated by the legend of Arthur that in May of 1233, he made a deal that would raise many an eyebrow at the time. He traded not one, not two, but three prime estates for a treeless, windswept headland. A headland, I looked it up, is a piece of coast. None other than Tintagel itself, separated from the mainland by a slender isthmus. That's a good deal. I think that that's a great deal. It's I would like give it land a- to beachfront property. Beachfront property, that's like mythical. Yeah. That's, I think that's actually a screaming deal. I would give up three estates. So three houses, probably in the mucks of England, right? In the swamps. Yeah. Um, In the 1200s. Yeah. It's going to, it's literally sinking into the ground as, as they were making these deals. So three garbage swamp muck filled estates in England for Mm -hmm. a mythical coastland enchanted by magic. Uh, yeah. what's the problem? I, I think someone got ripped off and it's not who this story is making it out to seem. This is akin to the Louisiana Purchase and he <laughs> got a steal. <laughs> so Richard's ambitions didn't stop there. On this rugged area piece of <laughs> land where the sea meets the sky, he built a castle. And it was no ordinary castle. Picture this. In a remote part of Cornwall, serving no strategic purpose no defense against foes, nothing as remarkable as Noel's un- own apartment. Thank you. The stories would tell, it would have like a great story, just like your shitty apartment. <laughs> it stood there, solitary and majestic, a testament to Richard's desire to not just own the land, but to weave his name into the fabric of legend and history. And why, you ask? Not because he owned two dogs and rent was a nightmare. 
<laughs> but because Richard was not just the Earl of Cornwall in his eyes, he envisioned himself as the successor of Arthur, the legendary king. And by building this castle, Richard was anchoring himself not to just a piece of land, but to a legacy, a story that has enthralled generations. And he wanted to be more than just a noble. He wanted to be part of the legend and write a new chapter in the ongoing saga of King Arthur. This is so cool, man. 1233, back when you could just do it. Back when you could just mm -hmm. become a little bit of a myth and a legend. We People just don't do it like they did in 1233 when you could just build a castle on a mythical coastland so you could become embedded into children fairy tales. Like that just, we don't do it anymore. Yeah, that's just a ballsy move. That's when people are like, I'm going to go into New York and make myself. I'm going to compare them to Richard. And if they're not even going to be able to hold a candle to this mm -hmm. man, mm -hmm. this is the only, one of the few men in history I will celebrate. Yeah, And I really, say that knowing nothing else about yeah, any of the likely and tragedies. And I'm not going to look it up. And I, <laughs> and I don't to look want it up. to. And I'm going to be blind to his atrocities and crimes against humanity. I am going to sleep easy tonight knowing that I am ignorant as ever. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so in the wake of Joffrey's initial tales, a cavalcade of writers, each with their own vivid imagination, added their own unique flourishes to the rich tapestry of Arthur's story. They introduced the elements that would become iconic, such as the mythical sword of Excalibur, the noble knights of the round table, the poignant romantic triangle involving Arthur, Guinevere, and Lancelot, and the tragic tale of Arthur's mortal wound at the Battle of Camelot. And each with each edition, each new layer, we only got a more deepened complexity of the allure of Arthur's world. And these Arthurian tales, a mesmerizing blend of courtly love, enchanting magic, and marital bravery, have been told and retold in countless versions over the centuries. Their journey spans from the earliest uh, stanzas of Welsh poetry to the vivid imagination, imagination of T.H. White. This is the novel I read, and The Once and Future King. And there were also profound depths from Sir Thomas Mallory's 15th century, La Morte to Arthur, and the modern reimagining in the 2021 film, The Green Knight, which Noel and I talked about heavily at the start of the episode. And with each retelling and each adaptation, it has breathed like new life into the legend, making it as vibrant today as it was centuries ago. Leah Tether, a professor of medieval studies at Bristol University and a former president of the International Arthurian Society's British branch. Man, that'd be a cool fucking club to be a part of. Yeah. Captures the le legend of Arthur's enduring appeal. Quote, saying, there is something in the Arthur legend for everyone. And indeed, the story of King Arthur is a kaleidoscope of human experiences and emotions. It features flawed characters with whom we can all empathize, quests for impossible goals, and a storyline that remarkably adapts to the sociopolitical landscape of each era. And Reluca Radulescu, I think I nailed it, mm -hmm. a professor of medieval literature at Bangor University in Wales, suggests another intriguing aspect of Arthur's yearly appeal. And it's tied with a standard of moral integrity that readers and dreamers find inspirational. In a world often bereft of such ideas, the stories of King Arthur offer a hope and nobility. They present a moral compass, like what we talked about earlier, that why might seem unattainable in real life does inspire and guide the vicissitudes of time and culture. And in essence, the legend of King Arthur... Um, continues to mirror reflecting the hopes and dreams and aspirations of each new generation that discovers and falls in love with these timeless tales. 
So now we're going to get into the question of all questions. Was there really a King Arthur? Or at the very least, was there a historical figure upon whom Joffrey's legendary heroes based? I feel like yes. I also say yes. I don't think... Duh. I think that... I think that really they had nothing better to do than to just write the shit that they knew. And I think the shit that they knew was the British monarchy. Yeah, I don't think also all I know. Like, I just don't think they were really being that creative. I just don't like I think that it had to be based in reality with like fibs. You know what I mean? Like They would expand on it and really embellish it. But I think it was absolutely based on someone real in history. I agree. Because I don't think that, I think that the human capacity for being creative exists always. But I don't, I think being creative during this time was dangerous. Yeah. And especially to the levels of creativity they were, like you're talking, yeah. like you're talking about like a, a mystical wizard who was like right hand to the king. Like that is very much real. But I also feel like yeah. you weren't coming up with that on your own unless you saw it. Yeah. And we also exist in a time in paranoia where even my grandpa wasn't allowed to be left-handed. So I could definitely see people just sticking to the status quo so they wouldn't get fucking burned alive. Yeah, exactly. It was like super high risk for little reward to have come up with this out of thin air. And yeah. I probably would have seemed like blasphemous against religion and the monarchy. Yeah. So in the time when le- the legend of Arthur was taking root, Britain was in the throes of a dramatic and tumultuous, tumultuous transformation. And this period of time is really shrouded in the mists of history um, because there was so much upheaval and change. So the tale begins when the mighty Roman Empire, which had extended its reach into the British Isles as early as 55 BC, um, and the Romans eventually conquered a vast expanse of territory, which stretched all the way up to present-day Scotland. And their conquest was marked by violence, but also did bring significant advancements. The Romans were master builders, they created networks of roads that still exist today, and they established towns such as Londoninium and Durovernum Canticorum, known today as London and Canterbury. There you go. Lots of syllables and consonants in there. Just for the hell of it. (laughs) But under Roman rule, the province of Britannia saw pretty considerable improvements in the quality of life. But the era of relative stability and prosperity was not built to last. In AD 410, a pivotal moment in British history unfolded. The Roman Empire, facing its own crises and was under a siege from the Visigoths, a Germanic tribe from Eastern Europe, made the fateful decision to withdraw its troops from Britannia. And this withdrawal plunged the region into chaos. The departure of the Romans led to the collapse of civil institutions, uh, which led to crippling economic downturn and a scarcity of basic household necessities. Food. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So the vacuum left by the Romans was quickly filled by a wave of Saxon invasions. Golly, isn't that weird how we see this shit in history where if you suddenly just pull all your shit military out of occupation a region, out, it falls yeah. apart. You know, yeah. it's almost like history is doomed to repeat itself yeah. when we don't pay attention. It's like if you don't respect the culture of an area and then you just leave it, you're leaving the innocent people wide open mm-hmm. to just even more chaotic turmoil yeah it's like when you come in and forcibly occupy 
uh, land and then just abandon it overnight, you've created a systematic black hole in the fabrics Mm. of their society. Luckily, you and I will never see that in our lifetime. You know what? It's like the Middle East never even happened. I don't even know what you're talking about. No. That's crazy. So these Saxon invasions brought terror and upheaval to the population, which fragmented Britannia into a series of fiefdoms often ruled by brutal strongmen in their games. Gangs. Gangs, yeah. I was like, do I move on? Because I'm there. And they're games. And they were playing poker. <laughs> and croquet. It was a godless time. Um, What's on the horses? Time. Polo? Yeah. They were playing polo. The anyway. worst of all rich sports. Um, and it was a time of lawlessness and strife. And as described by a British monk named Gildas in the 6th century, Britain has kings, but they are tyrants, engaged in plunder and rape, and always preying upon the innocent. Some would say that's exactly what the British royalty is still up to today. I would say that. I would say it as well. <laughs> um, I don't respect them ever since they did what they did to Diana. And I've I know we say that. Them. I've never respected them. Fucking, those are the real reptilians. Bruv. Yeah, they are, man. They've been here from the beginning, fucking shit up and destroying culture. Send them back to the Venusian province. I will never get the image of fucking Crypt Keeper recently in his throne, wearing his gowns, wearing his crown with the biggest diamond you've ever seen in your entire life. It looks like a cartoon. And he's literally like, we know that the country has been feeling economic struggle and we are doing our best to help aid. And then you're like, you're literally saying this bullshit, pompous, just checked out statement of like, some of you will die. Like with the... It's just so dystopian to see him sitting up there pretending like he cares about people starving to death in his country as he wears a fucking 7,000 billion fucking blood diamond on his goddamn head. It is so dystopian and just such a perfect picture of the British monarchy throughout times and ages. Yeah, just out of touch. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was, man, I wish Arthur would pop up out of that diamond and just beat the shit out of him. Uh, imagine him just taking the tampon of Camilla and just shoving it so far <laughs> fucking down his throat. Yeah, I um, want it to be like a Mortal Kombat fatality where he like <laughs> takes the tampon and like with the like palm of his hand like shoves it through his fucking uh, mouth and it comes uh, out the back but then we see like the x-ray version of him and you see yeah. the like, skeleton crack and then his brains come out of his eyes and they say fatality. Oh, that'd be sick. That'd be so Maybe sick. that's why King Arthur hasn't come back, because he's been engaged in Mortal Kombat. <laughs> so, the backdrop <laughs> of this broken and suffering Britannia, that the legend of King Arthur emerged. <laughs> um, so, Joffrey of Monmouth, the 12th century guy who wrote down the first account of Arthur that we mentioned earlier, actually, the, the text of Arthur became Europe's most popular text after the Bible. And it painted a picture of Arthur's life that offered a stark contrast to the grim reality of what people are actually living in. 
And Arthur's story also appeared in a 9th century text by Nennius, which added another compelling layer to the evolving legend and history. Mark Morris, a renowned British historian and author of the 2021 book called The Anglo-Saxons, A History of the Beginning of England, 400 to 1066, aptly described this era as Britain was a failed state and it was a miserable time to be alive. Mm -hmm. Not much has changed. Yeah. Um, In such a time, the need for a hero, for a symbol of hope and justice, was profound. This need, coupled with the human penchant for storytelling, gave birth to the enduring legend of King Arthur, and a beacon of hope in an age of darkness and despair began to blossom. And in the shadowy and tumultuous period following the Roman withdrawal from Britannia, many historians believe that during this era of upheaval, this likely un- this valiant warrior lo- rose to an unlikely prominence, and he led the Britons, who had largely embraced Christianity, against the pagan Saxons. And this was the time when a need for a unifying and heroic figure was at at Zenith, and in a crucible of history, we see where the legend of Arthur finds its roots because this did happen. The earliest uh, whispers of this figure who resembled Arthur could be traced to the Welsh poem E. Gododin, penned sometime between AD 540 and 640. And this work commemorates fallen warriors and contains fascinating references of the soldiers likened to someone named Arthur. Suggested at that time, uh, whose name was so renowned that his bravery became a benchmark against which others were measured. And this tantalizing hint implies that an individual named Arthur had already achieved a legendary status amongst his contemporaries or near contemporaries. Around this same period, Gildas, a monk known for his scathing writings on the moral decline of Britain, chronicled a significant British victory at the Battle of Baden Hill. He dated this event to around the time of his own birth, likely in the early 6th century. And interestingly enough, though, he did not mention Arthur by name, but he called the person in his story Ambrosius Aurelanius, which to some people think is him just Romanizing King Arthur's name. Also, he dated this event to around the time of his own birth, likely in the early 6th century. Were we just making up dates? Like, we just were kind of like... We didn't really know. We were like, yes, could be. Because there isn't, we could also do a podcast episode about this, but if you look up lost time, there is an entire chronicle of human history where time for some reason just resets. So we may not actually be living in the year 2024. We're not. We could be living in a completely different year because for some reason, timekeeping that we as a Western civilization have agreed upon, we lost a fucking chunk of it. Do they have, is there like estimates of what they think we actually are in? Like, is yes. scholars like come to the conclusion that they think we're actually in like this year or whatever? Yeah. Yes. And we could do an entire podcast episode about it. I actually have it written down in some things, but it's, there was a societal collapse and we just fucking weren't chronicling time anymore. Dude, this, you know, not to take us off track again, but the only, the only good thing and also terrifying thing about the digital age is record keeping, but mm-hmm. it also is terrifying because it could just be swept away like that. But yeah. so can it always, because my dad has been getting into um, genealogy because he wants to get a citizenship 
not in this country, which Slay King. Yeah. Um, so he's going back and like pulling all of these files and documents to get us um, citizenship in a in a different country, either in I think like Italy or Ireland. And um, he's like just to his great grandma or no his grandma my great grandma his grandma my great grandma the documents the census records were off of vibes he had to order like two birth certificates because at some point they just documented her birthday wrong like the year and there was just a period of time where she went by like different ages quote-unquote legally like there was just it was just a guy and a pencil. That's and that was just three generations ago. Yeah. And so thinking back to shit from the 1200s, what? You know what I mean? Like we don't have shit from less than 100 years ago. It's it's dicey information. Yeah. This yeah. shit, you know what I mean? Like Oh my, it's crazy. It's, it's so totally like, yeah, of course we are actually, we've lost so much time as a, as a human species because we were fucking writing it down on a wax tablet and then it got too hot in the room and all that shit fucking erased and that's it, girl. Then it's that's gone. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I can't remember, I can't remember the name of the conspiracy because it is a conspiracy theory that we've lost time, but it is supported by the fact that the records be fucked. And when people want to look back and say like, oh, it was just because our we're human and humans are prone to mistakes, but we have people who are able to mathematically determine the curvature of the fucking earth before technology, like the modern technology that we have now, and invent complex mathematics by observational science, and you're meaning to tell me that we can't write shit down. Yeah, yeah. Make it make sense. Yeah, it doesn't. So, around 8.30, a Welsh monk compiled the history of the Britons, which is a text that blended history and legend. And in this work, there is a vivid picture painted of a warrior named Arthur who led the Britons in a series of 12 epic battles against the Saxons. And at the crescendo of these battles, according to Nennius, there was a confrontation at the mountain of Baden. And it was here that Arthur achieved a stunning victory, single-handedly slaying 960 men in a single charge. This was also referenced in the Green Knight. And the 12th, it was quoted that the 12th battle was on the mountain of Baden, where in which there fell in one day 960 men from one charge of Arthur, and no one slew them except him alone, and in all battles, he was there the victor. So again, this is just another reference in history of a legendary person coming and defeating the Saxons. Mm-hmm. And the portrayal of Arthur as a peerless warrior and leader, victorious in every battle, further cemented the legend of King Arthur himself. And it is these fragments of history, poetry, and legend interwoven over the centuries that have contributed to the enigmatic and enduring legend of King Arthur, which points to Nennius and Joffrey's accounts of the potential proof of Arthur's historical presence. So much where there's smoke, there's fire. But let's go into somebody who's a little bit more rooted in history, where we have a little bit more, um, other than just writings and references of people that we don't really know. Let's talk about King Edward I, because he had a really deep fascination with Arthurian legend, which underscored just how deeply this story had become ingrained into the medieval psyche. 
In a move that revealed both his belief in the legend and his political astuteness, Edward visited Glastonbury in 1278. A slight I just longest- like, immediately thought of like the Glastonbury Music Festival, and I just thought about him in like a crocheted crop top. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> in like a feather headdress, yeah. super appropriate. Um, in a site long associated with the Arthurian lore. And he made a decision to disinter the grave believed to be Arthur's, and this had a dual purpose. On one hand, it was meant to quell the persistent rumors that Joffrey's hero was a superhuman and possibly still alive, um, because if that were the case, then he could pose a challenge to Edward's authority. But on the other hand, it demonstrated Edward's reverence for the legend of Arthur, who was a key cultural and historical figure in Britain in the 1200s. Wait, so you're telling me that he wanted to dig up the grave because just in case he was alive? Yes. That's, you know what? That would have been so fucking scary, dude. Oh, if you really believed it. Oh, yeah. What happened? Oh, you're right. Let's go into it. So this event was Arthur popped up and punched him in the dick. (laughs) Um, The event was marked by an actual significant discovery. According to a local observer, two caskets were found containing bones of extraordinary size and beauty. And beauty. Beauty. And they were believed to be those of King Arthur and Guinevere. This finding further fueled the legends of lore and mystery. And in a gesture of respect and royal recognition, King Edward I and had the queen and King Arthur wrapped in silk and sealed them with a royal emblem, reinterred them, and thereby cemented Arthur's status, not just as a legendary figure, but also a symbol of historical significance. And this marked a very significant turning point in the popularity of the Arthur legend. Have we gone back with modern science? Dug him up? Well, we don't fucking know what he did with them, unfortunately. What? Oh um, my god. Uh, yeah. We can never have anything good. Yeah, we never have god. anything nice. How can the how can the British just take everything? They take everything from everyone and they put it in the fucking museum and then they won't give it back and then we just want to look at their fucking dead skeletons and just be like, let me do a quick yeah. DNA test. And they're like, oh, so oopsie. Oopsie, I can't find it. Oopsie. Get fucked. Are it's, you kidding me? I can't. It's very national treasure featuring my first love, Nicolas Cage, because what happened was Richard I wrote an entire fucking manuscript about everything that he found that proved King Arthur was fucking real. And it's very hard to find a surviving copy of it. Now, Richard Barber, an Arthurian scholar from Sussex, has tracked down roughly 235 copies, but... Uh, these are manuscripts that have survived since the 1200s. So they are chewed the fuck up. They have been like Henry VIII with all of his bullshit with the dis, um, dissolution of monasteries in the 1500s. Bunches of them were destroyed or ripped up. Um, there's also a lot of the closures of monasteries and the subsequent break with the Roman church led to the destruction of many copies. And when I say that he found copies, he found references to copies, right? And some were repurposed as mundane wrapping material for pies. Noel, we God. have lost the history of the most important king in fucking human knowledge because people used him to wrap up their pies. Also a British pie. So the most underbaked, yeah. under seasoned, sloppy mess of mushed peas you've ever mm-hmm. seen in your fucking life. 
Oh, my God. The manuscripts detailing Arthur became so ubiquitous, their sheer commonness was led to them being discarded as trash and repurposed in many ways, meaning that everything that we know about Merlin, the Green Knight, Ladies of the Lake, King Arthur, the Round Table, are pieced together from people's fucking food trash. Isn't that heartbreaking? And is that not the symbolism of Britain's reign? Because that's where we fucking end it. Because that's what they fucking do, baby. Yeah. Oh, my God. It, this is so British coded. It's crazy. It's crazy just destroying history and art to wrap up their mushy gray matter of food. And then, yeah. Oh, God, what? Spit it or whatever. <laughs> the human capacity for disrespect to go into a place, a monastery, and just rip shit off the walls and wrap their fucking food in it of shit that at this time was still fucking old, was still artifacts of history, and that's how it was treated by people who should have fucking known better. Henry VIII should have known better. At least he was like, are you supposedly educated? But no, fuck him. No, they're all sucking on mercury at each other's unwashed toes. God. That's such a bummer. That is such a bummer. But it's also like, oh, the British are at it again. Yeah. If they're not stealing diamonds and cultural artifacts from other people, then they're fucking destroying the only good thing that they've brought to us lately. And that's King Arthur. God damn it. God, it's just so British coded. It's so British coded to fuck yourself up, like fuck your own history and yeah. lore up so that you get mad and you rip it from other people. Yeah. It's just it's- such, it's so British of them. The, in these moments, I'm proud to be an American. And I'm proud to be an American patriot because fuck the British, baby. I'll dump the tea all day, you fucking whores. I'm going to the Boston Harbor. I'm going to dump your fucking tea. Fuck you, Britain, your fucking taxes and your fake mm-hmm. queen and your fake pedophile king. Yeah, these colors don't run, baby. I'm going to print off a picture of the of Queen Elizabeth. I'm going to use her to wrap up a dirty fucking taco from Taco Bell. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to throw it in the trash because that's what I think about her lizard self. (laughs) I'm so bitter about this. I thought we were going to get a cool ending to the episode and it was like, not really, babe. It's just British people doing British things, girl. Classic. You want to know something actually? I was so worried to find out if I was British at all. Because my dad and my mom subsequently have been doing a lot of genealogy. Yeah. And um, this is me writing it out. Oh, yeah. Guess what? I'm not, baby. British. Thank you. Let me read it. Hold it. Put it up. I want to read the percentages out for people. I saw Dutch. Was Dutch at the top? Yeah. I don't know, man. Some of that shit blends together. You're just like a cauliflower soup. Dutch, Irish, Italian, German, and Hungarian. Yeah. I feel like you could have a little touch of Brit in you. No, look at me. Look at me. Not a Brit in sight. You are a white 
person with blue eyes and you're trying to convince me. <laughs> yeah. Fuck yourself. I'm a white person with blue eyes. That means I'm not actually, it means there is inbreeding within me because that's where the color dyed gene comes from. But I bet it has to do with um, the Hungarian portion. Maybe. <laughs> um, I'm sure. I don't. I've done, I've looked at my uncle's genealogy test, but I haven't done one myself. But um, my grandpa on my dad's side was adopted. So it would be cool Mm. to see what it is. But I also don't want to, there's a part of the conspiracy theorist in me where I don't want the government to have my DNA. But there's also a part of the conspiracy theorist in me that says it's ignorant to think they don't already have it. That's the tea of it all. Um. Yeah. So, and then just you can't commit any crimes anymore because that's how they're getting you. Um, I was actually surprised, and this is actually not based off of DNA. This is based off of record keeping. This is yeah. based off of manpower um, because we have pretty much everyone came like not my parents, parent, not my grandparents, but their parents. Like my great grandparents mm-hmm. came. All of them pretty much came off the boat on Ellis Island. And so like, it's pretty easy to track it all back. And I don't know why um, my last name is Cummings. And I just thought that wasn't Irish. Um, I had no idea that I was equal parts Irish and Italian. That was news to me. It's really actually interesting. Um, It would be cool to do a deep dive into genealogy. I have like a a book that goes way back on my grandma's side of all of my relatives. But that's only I only know shit about my dad's side of the family because if you look at my mom's side of the family, my mean grandma won't tell me anything. So Wasn't she German? Uh my mean grandma is Irish. Oh, my nice grandma who actually likes me is German. You know, I spent the night at her house over the break. Yeah, she's so cool. I saw the TikTok where people go to like their Nana's house and surprise them with a sleepover. Yeah. I did that with my sister and my niece. And uh, my grandma goes to bed at like a ripe 7 PM. (laughs) And so we were like, she doesn't have cable. She doesn't have good internet. She has like the old TV where you have to go up to it and like switch the shit. Hell yeah. Why don't so, you give her a new fucking TV with Chromecast? You she evil doesn't step no, no, no. She doesn't want it. So if grandma goes to bed at 7 p.m., that means we go to bed at 7 p.m. So I am like, and now for those of you who don't know, my grandpa was adopted and raised on a Navajo Indian reservation. So despite the fact that he is uh very was very obviously white. Culturally, that's what he identified with. His verse language was Navajo. So his house is filled with Navajo motifs, including Kachina dolls. Uh, So I slept in the Kachina doll room, listening to my grandma play German radio from like the 1940s. That was like problematic time to be playing the radio. (laughs) And her, I don't want to call it my grandma like this, but I say it with love. Her snoring sounded like an ominous fucking ghost was like (laughs) i know exactly what you're talking about and i am just in bed never been more awake in my life (laughs) on the bed in there is smaller than a twin i think it's like a toddler bed and i'm on there with bear just staring at the light 
<laughs> in my face from the street light. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. I, I was awake until, I think I was awake until 3 a.m. So it was 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. At which point I finally doze off only to be woke up at 5 a.m., which is what time my grandma wakes up at. Yeah, and I just fucking went home. Yeah, I would back she, it up. I would back was, it up. She was like, do you want to stay for coffee? And I went, you know what, Grandma? I better get home to Puffin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you fall asleep on the drive. Do you want to? Oh, oh my t- God, dude. Two things for you. Talking about grandmas in tiny, uncomfortable beds. It is just like, that must just be it. So I unfortunately only have one surviving grandparent. Um, and she's crazy. And she lives on the top of a mountain alone in Vermont and has two houses built on this property and is messaging me on TikTok to build a third. I'd rather die. Anyway, her guest room, her guest room is a fucking colonial replica with real antiques. Uh, colonial antiques huh the bed is not only is it problematic and haunted and caked in the blood of innocence the bed is literally made out of straw (laughs) it's literally made out of straw like materials and um you first of all looking in that room terrifying there's just porcelain dolls but like not like the ones that you see at the di now like the actual like this is what children played with when they got off of the like real human hair yeah Yeah. like yeah stolen human hair um it is the most terrifying and it's (laughs) it's terrifying it's problematic and um it's just like why are we doing this why is this here like why do we have this like what's going on and um so i don't know you you either are a grandma who covers the couch in plastic or you're a grandma who has a bed that's no one should sit on it. It's just for show. Yeah. It was the scariest. <laughs> I was so fucking sc- At one point, Bear needed to go potty. So I'm sitting in my grandma's dark-ass kitchen just listening to over German tunes and I I was like I think a ghost is gonna get me yeah the German uh, radio would have really sent me off the edge um yeah. the other thing that I found surprising about the genealogy I didn't realize my grandpa my maternal grandpa they're straight up from Holland hell yeah dude let's do some Holland uh shit in the winter time we can get you wooden shoes and you can clog around like Heidi and be adorable who would have thought, you know, who would I don't thought? get an ounce of Holland from you. Thank you. I get Italian in the way that you yell at me passionately sometimes Thank about you. nothing that is my fault. You want to uh, know, I think maybe the Dutch is like, it's on my mom's side, obviously. And I think it has mostly stayed with the men because that's where you get the 50-50. It's literally 50% Italian, 50% Dutch straight mm-hmm. up from Holland and Italy. And it's like, my mom does not look Dutch. That's an Italian woman from Long Island. Yeah. Yeah. That's an Italian American from Long Island. And if she ever went back to Italy, she would be ridiculed for it. Yeah. We should uh, do, uh, we should like look for like a cheap test to do and see if we can like track down what our blood ancestry says. Yeah. It would be curious. Also, Hungarian. It's 12.5% Hungarian, but 
what's going on there? You know, I just I had a Germanic mixing. It's just what's hungry. You know, what's <laughs> hi hungry? I'm a turkey. <laughs> like what? I don't know. I don't there? Know. What's that? What my American know. education is showing yeah. me is I'm saying, what the fuck is hungry, girl? What is it? What is it? New England? <laughs> is it like New England? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just by Googling, Hungary, a.k.a. or Budapest, has become known as the city of spas. So that's your propensity for taking baths, bitch. Is Hungary? Okay. No one judge me. No one judge me. I went to school in America. I went to, I had public education in New York and California. So what do I even know? Is Hungary a country currently? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> What's it Fucking by? Idiot. What's it by? What's it by? Where uh, is... It's known for goulash. The Danube River. On a map. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go find hungry food. Because when I'm... food? Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. So it's not German it's I actually, said Germanic. Germanic or, is different than German. So it goes Poland, Slovakia. Is that real? And then oh, Hungary? my bad. Hungarian is neither German, Germanic nor Slavic. That was my bad. They are uh, a unique people in Europe of Central Asian provenance, and their language is totally unrelatable to Germanic and Slavic. They're in the center, surrounded by Austria. Slovenia, Croatia, Serbia, Romania, Ukraine, Slovakia. Bosnia, Romania. Yeah, I see that is I hate, a mere stone's throw from Macedonia. I hate to say it. I really thought that, you know, Hungary was one of those countries that got dissolved after the war. And I think you're thinking of the Czech Republic. Yes, yes uh, I am. Hungary, <laughs> Hungary is just like right in between... If you zoom out on the map, it's like, right, it's the belly button of Germany and Ukraine. Yes. But I still know nothing about it. I don't know anything about it. Like, what peace and love to them. It looks like a pretty chunky place, too. Like, it has actual landmass to it. It's an actual I, country. Weird. And I couldn't tell you a dick about it. Yeah. Like, what even is that? Let's see. Are there- what are facts about hungary dude we should do an episode about this hungarian cryptid there's hungarian the Urk Desporta. oh that's the name of the website i'm gonna they make a uh, paprika chicken is uh something from paprika. <laughs> yeah paprika. they have spices they have their what own language hungary's main export <laughs> no well they kick yeah you're their only export. Everything else was too good, but they Hungary kicked you the fuck out. has a diverse range of exports: automobiles and auto parts, machinery and equipment, electronic, pharmaceuticals, chemicals. What does that mean? <laughs> Food and agriculture. Wow. You know what? Some would say it's a real country still this day. <laughs> it didn't get dissolved after Huge the war. You true. <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah, definitely not the Czech Republic. So. Definitely not. <laughs> Damn. But anyway, uh, the more you know, right? The yeah, more I learn. you know. <laughs> oh my god. We Every should get, day we learn. 
every day, every day. Every day I, I get a little more fat. Every day I learn a little bit more knowledge, which that goes straight is to my tummy. Literally, literally me real bad right now. It's like, I hate to say it, but I have learned more from just sitting here making an idiot of myself and Googling the facts of the matter than probably all years of my education and extended education. Uh, yeah. Because when the fuck were they going to tell me that that country is real? That Hungary is a real country. <laughs> uh, yeah. Wait until I tell you that Romania is different than Rome. Like, what are we even doing? <laughs> I don't know. We should get out of here no. before we show how stupid even are. How stupid are we even are? This is the importance of giving a child a globe map and not just one of this stupid fucking country. Is all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because where's New England on that map? <laughs> You got to stop doubling down on New England, man. That should have been buried into the smooth, the last, that should have been buried into the last fold of the brain that I had left. And you just won't let me forget it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because they got me. Anyway, Uh. uh, speaking of things that'll get you, you can get the link in all of our bios. (laughs) Um, We're at Go to Hell Podcast. I'm at Noel Fane. That's at Sith Lord. And in that link tree, you can also find a link to our Patreon. A dollar gets you in. It was a fun little episode today. Controversial episode, some yeah. might say. <laughs> um, we also have a link to our merch page. 100% of proceeds are donated. We also have a link to our Discord server. Our um, I took Facebook off because I'm it's dead to me. And I'm, mm, I'm so fucking happy, bitch. So that's gone but we do have a link to kelly holloran or at wildwood owl on etsy's page she makes cool shit for us and she makes cool shit in general so go check her out and you know i saw a tweet the other day where someone referred to themselves as a real satanist And it made me cringe so hard (laughs) that my butthole puckered up into oblivion and disintegrated like a mummy's dust. And it made me come to this point and realize, like, do I still say this or is it too cringe? Is saying this just like the black craft t-shirt in a Mormon city of statements? Is this the toe shoes and granolas in my back pocket of rock climbing and for that reason i will say hail the country of hungary which is completely real (laughs) (laughs) and valid (laughs) and has a current population with many exports such as automobiles and paprika chicken yeah, and I'm going to say Hail New England, which is the only mythical <laughs> landmass that Noelle actually believes in. So I've convinced her of something, y'all. Woo. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>